everyone and welcome to another exciting episode of the Madam's Cast. Remember to download if you're listening, please, and feel free to leave comments either on Podbean or iTunes or however you're listening this week. That'd be great. Um, joining me this week from Devon is, oh, it's a, it's a tricky one to describe. I think I'm going to ask him, but before I ask him, I think I need to tell you that he's on the floor under his desk because that's the only way he could get the microphone plugged into his computer. Andy Gray, are you still there? I am here under my desk and uh, hopefully not to get a quick neck. <laughs> well, that's that's good that you're attempting not to get a crick neck. I, I like that. Um, and Andy, can you tell us, I mean, how would I think of you? I think of you as a kind of cross between a farmer and a butcher and an all round sort of smart cookie in terms of uh, in terms of sort of long game farming. Um, but I don't know how to sum that up in a nutshell. Can you give me an idea? Well, two, of, two out of three isn't bad. I don't go to write the smart bit. But, uh, yeah, I was born farming and um, also cider making. My family farmed in Devon for over years on the same farm. But, unluckily, I was a younger brother, so I was sent out to make my own way. And um, because of the uh, exposure to direct marketing that uh, cider produced in, in our family, um, but obviously going into an allied industry and being a meat processor and vertical integrator seemed like the way to go. So I started off um, running a slaughterhouse for chickens and turkeys, and as years have gone on, we've developed it into butchery, game dealing, processing venison, and all things involving a knife, I suppose. And at the same time, uh, after years and years of struggling, we've managed to buy the farm we're on, and that's allowed us to... uh, go back to our farming roots. Not that we ever lost them, because we were always uh, rearing poultry, and uh, and I farmed as a uh, manager for somebody else on the same piece of land. So, yeah, it's 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 that blend between the, those two things. Brilliant. Brilliant. Um, and so... Oh, where are we going to start? I mean, you know that you know the history of the Madam's Cast. You know you've got to come up with three things um, uh, that you'd like to change about the world of food, and um, you know they can be as far out as you like. They can be as serious as you want. They can be as funny as you like. But I think so far we seem to be sort of getting quite a few recurring themes. So I think it's going to be interesting whether you're uh, of the same opinion because you're kind of at the other end of the story you know that sort of farming provision end ultimately food is all about farming or at least to some extent because without production we don't have anything to eat um, and so in a way farming influences food and food influences farming and they sort of work together in a kind of groovy way but it'll be interesting to hear from your point of view how you think that works what you like and what you don't like and what you'd like to see changed Okay, well, I mean, there's so many things I'd like to change. It really is a pretty unambitious list, but um, I've never grown anything which I didn't already have a market for. Most most farmers have uh, they produce for a um, commodity market where it goes off on somebody else tells you what they're going to pay you, and it goes off into uh, world commodity prices. Uh, so that to me is the beginning of a of a mistake, um, but that's not what I was going to talk about. So going on to, okay. on to, on to, on to number one of, of my list of, of three. Um, when I was younger, we had, a, we had ADAS in farming, and ADAS was, uh, stands for, I have to remember this, Agricultural Development and Advisory Service. And this was government financed, and it, it meant that we could have um, 
good research and good science dissipated down to what is a very, very disparate industry. So there's the, uh, I mean, basically, we've got loads of farmers. Most of them don't talk to more than two or three other farm. Well, not two. But their, their, their capacity to spread knowledge within the industry has all has always been quite small because they live at the end of very long lanes in the dotted about the countryside by the very nature of the uh, industry it is dissipated. So ADAS's job was to spread good practice, do good research, all independent and paid for by government, um, which you might argue is a bad thing, but the alternative has been worse. And basically, we've had the alternative for 40 years Maggie but felt that this was a bad idea to have the government paying for these things. So farming has been left um, reliant on um, basically uh, commercial advice. So you have a an agronomist who, whose job it is to sell sprays, and he comes to you and says, "Now then, Mr. Gray, I think you, uh, I think the advice I'm going to give you is that you need to spray this. Oh, I've got to spray here. I'll sell it to you." So so it's driven us into the hands of, uh, of of advisors who look at your crops or look at your livestock and say, ah, I have a I have an answer to this and my answer is charged for. So inevitably it's 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 really a um, skewed advice that we've been getting for, for forty years other than good solid um, independent science. Uh, we are returning slightly to that with the Agricultural Horticultural Development Board, which is paid for through a industry levy. And that's the beginning of, 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 of returning to the ADAS thing. I mean, the other people, and then of course, the other advice we've been getting is advice from NGOs, government, uh, and um, uh, like the OSPB and the Science Association, which is very often agenda driven and, and sometimes driven by nutters and sometimes driven by uh, good sense. Uh, and it's quite difficult as a farmer to winnow out the nutters from the good sense sometimes. So. So there we are. That's the first thing. I don't know what your feelings are about that, but that's that that that's wow. to me is something which it's it's a broad brush problem which has brought farming in this country to where it is. Wow. Well, I mean, you know, one of the things I like about you, Andy, is that you don't mince your words, and that's there's there's definitely no no mincing going going on there at all. Um, I need to. I think I need to just sort of touch on some of that with you a little bit um okay so in a nutshell are we saying that commercial interests uh around but not in agriculture have created unnecessary issues with food production yes not necessarily by intention so, so, so I'm a commercial. I'm a commercial organisation. I've designed a spray which is going to, I don't know, knock out aphids. Um, and I'm going to. I've spent a lot of money developing this spray, and, I, and, and now I want to sell this spray. And it, it's it's very difficult at that point to, to think to yourself it's going to be an unbiased advice. So it's. I, I, I'm not necessarily saying there's a terrible. Um, uh, collusion or anything else to, to do terrible things to the landscape necessarily. It's just that that's the nature of, of, of having commercially driven science. I suppose if you're talking to anybody about looking at science, you have to always ask who pays for scientists. And yeah. when yeah. we were younger, scientists were mainly paid by, but they were mainly driven by um, a desire to, to know things and paid for by government or universities or of people like that. Nowadays, much more science is driven by industry, and 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 they inevitably want to get their money back, so, which is why you've always had farm, farmer 
farmer based, as in pH farmer, um, scandals with with um, trials not being done quite right, and so on. So on. But, I mean, cash is king in in the main and on the whole. I think nowadays, I think we're beginning to realise that um, that this is a bit of a mistake, and um, cash being king doesn't necessarily take into account the cost of um, the environmental damage done by things which cash is, which which the systems pay for. So systems create problems, but the systems don't necessarily pay for the problems. And so the, the polluter pay principle um, has been established, but it doesn't actually function in any shape or form. Now the polluter still doesn't pay for anything. So so you could look at an industry and go, well, the industry is profitable in itself, on its in its own isolation, but it's not actually societally profitable. So, I mean, this is revolutionary stuff, and I'll be pitchforked to death when I walk out the door into, into the general <laughs> countryside in a, in, a, in a minute or two. But, um, but I, I mean, you can't, this is stuff which is undeniably true. Um, governments have never really worked quite out how to tackle it. And that's probably because, I mean, we could go off into massive tangents here. So, I mean, one of the problems with governments is they haven't realised that some clever clubs a long time ago invented the wheel, and as soon as they put in place a um, a law, then everything gets transported from somewhere else to circumvent the law. I mean, the classic case was veal cars. Let's ban veal veal production in the UK. So, what happens? All the all the veal car, all the baby cars get sent to Holland, where they're reared in the system which we banned in the UK, and then they get brought back again on the hook. So, you, it, so often the difficulty with legislating for uh, polluter pays or whatever else is the, uh, the the fact that we just export the problem somewhere else. Right. I'm, gonna, not, I'm, so I'm, I'm not I'm not saying gonna... it's a simple problem, a simple thing to solve any of this stuff, but it's all complex. But yeah, you go on. What are you going to say? Yeah, well, no, I just think it's conversational. I don't think we have to fix it right now, but I think it's good to talk about it. And I want to I wanna come back to Veal, but we've been quite helicopter on point one, and I want to zoom in a little bit. So just quickly, um, if it's quickly doable, uh, we'll, we'll see how we get on with that. Um, let's use your example of my crop being covered in aphids. If I'm not going to go to um, Dave's Chemical Sprays Limited and spray it with my Dave's Chemical Spray Number 7 uh, for aphids, what am I going to do? Because otherwise, all of the crop I'm growing is going to get eaten by aphids. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Uh, but it's more nuanced than that. So um, it comes down to economic trigger points. So if I've got five aphids on my wheat, they're probably not doing very much damage. If I've got seven, there could be at that economic tipping point where it's worth getting my tractor out and driving up and down. If I've got 12, then probably it's too late. Uh, so, but, and, and all I'm saying is that the uh, your, your agronomist's desire to spray the wheat is slightly greater. You know, his economic trigger point might be more flexible than, than good science. And, and that's, a, that's a simplified version of it. But it's, it is complex. So, but, and, and it is nuanced. It's, it's, it's not that I'm saying you shouldn't spray because ultimately... Uh, the type of farming that we are locked into at the moment, which I could go, which I could, would be very interested to talk about as well. Um, the, the, the economic triggers driven by the prices that we're given on a world market, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, say that you have to do these things. I mean, we're locked into an economic system where spraying is the only option, unless we go organic, uh, which I could. 
talk about for a long time as well, and I don't think that's yeah. necessarily the answer. Um, because it's it's been as to whether you realise a different price. I, I mean, it's so very complicated because, of course, pricing structures all, all the way anyway. Because we're saying we're pulling. Okay, right. Because yeah. I've I've got an idea, right? I've got an idea, and um, let's say that um, Dave's chemical sprays is shut, but you knew that last year you had to spray for aphids, and this year you're growing the same crop. Would you not grow lots of um, spare ladybirds somewhere to eat all the aphids, or would you then have the crop eaten by ladybirds? Well, that's brilliant because that takes us on a circle back to the advice. So the advice should have been in the first place: don't have a system that doesn't have ladybirds in it. So, so best practice nowadays potentially is to uh, have beetle banks and reserves on your landscape to produce more um, more uh, predatory species to, to eat aphids. And but 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 nobody's been doing that research because you can't make money out of bloody beetle banks. You can only make money out of making chemicals. So in some ways, that highlights the bit that I missed on my original. Uh, uh, sort of dialogue was the fact that um, the advice isn't, it isn't just about weather use display, but it's about the entire farming system. So we've 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 gone down a, a, a pharmacological farming system, a, a, a chemical farming system, because the people who advise us are the ones who make the chemicals. So it's it's more it's much bigger and more important than weather display five aphids or seven aphids. It's whether or not um, the farming system which we've we've developed is the right farming system in the best way, uh, and, yeah. and that that's your average farmer. To, uh, I don't mean the average farmer in, in a you know to, back to most farmers is uh, a bit of a shocker to, to, because this is what we've done for so long, and um, and it's you know we've got all our capital invested in it, and we you know, our land has cost so much money because it's a tax haven and. Uh, we are not paid enough money to, to 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 do it any other way, and so on and so on. And so, on. so it's it's a you know it's a it's a very very it's a massive conundrum. Uh, but we're in the position we're in, but we're not necessarily the position we're in for the right reasons. For the right, uh, and that I I do blame partly on the um, the fact that our science has not been independent. So it comes. Sometimes it comes back to basic. Well, you always want to step into back to basic principles, and that is one of my basic principles. We 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 just need more independent science on why we're doing it the way we're doing it. Yeah, study rather than study with an aim at the end of it. Yeah, more trials, more trials. Money. Yeah, yeah. More okay. Trials. I mean, we've got a- great, the great aphid trials of twenty twenty one. I'm looking forward to those. Yeah, well, it's more than it's sort of it's it's it's. Uh, you know, the, the, the entire structure of the landscape trials is what we really need to be looking at. And we are heading that way. So I'm, I'm getting involved in um, some silvopastoral trials or woodland, wood pasture trials, uh, which is planting trees on the um, and growing around livestock in and amongst it all. And, and that's being paid for by the Woods and Trust and um, no doubt some lovely grants from government as well, probably, but uh, who knows. Uh, and and people like the Institute of Grassland Ecological Research, or people by Rothenstein, which is, of course, a commercial organisation, but they do huge amounts of, of uh, publicly funded science as well, and they're looking at all sorts of this sort of thing. And then there's lots and lots of realisation that soil science is deeply um, not misunderstood, just not really, there's, there's just so much knowledge which we don't have, and it's a, it, one of the most intensely exciting sciences there are, in my view. 
I would tell any child who's thinking of a scientific career to, to look at soil because there's so much there we don't know. It's so much enormous biodiversity and bacteriological and, and microbiological diversity, which is, um, and, and in my view, is one of the great new um, barriers which we will break through to improving yields and improving the landscape and locking our carbon. I mean, we could go on and on, and on like that as well. So much to talk about. Yeah. So much, so much to say and so little time, really. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I mean, there was a there's a there's a fantastic mycologist in the states, a guy called Paul Stamets, and um, I was reading one of his books one day. You know, as you do uh, as a chef, I'm always reading sort of thick um, scientific tomes on yes. how fungus work. And his brother-in-law was a grain farmer in a southern state in the U.S., and he was literally on a three-year countdown to the point where he wouldn't have enough soil left to plant yeah. seed. And he's talking to his brother-in-law about this, and he says, well, you know, if the soil's eroding that badly, there's no my, there's no mica, uh, there's no mycorrhizal uh, fungi, thank you, yeah. There's no, um, there's none of that in the soil. You've been spraying for fungi that attack the soil, uh, that yeah. attack the wheat before you harvest it, and that's broad-spectrum fungicide has killed off all the fungus growing in the soil. Now, mycelium which is the fungal matting that lives you know within whatever substrate the fungus is growing in can hold 10 times its own weight in water and when it's doing that it clings and holds all the soil together and stops it getting washed away by the rain and, and so they started introducing mycorrhizal fungi um, and stopped spraying fungicide and now he's accruing new soil um so like you say, I think there's so many, the, the sort of temptation to wrap up point one, if we like, is we're sort of in a system at the moment where it's a case of do it exactly like this. If something goes wrong, we've got something that will fix it. Yeah. But the fix is short term and you're treating the symptom of something that's not working rather than the root cause of the problem. Yeah, that's the idea. Brilliant. That's, I'm glad uh, I managed to understand that because it was looking quite complicated and I'm not the brightest spark in the box. It's, so, it, it, yeah. uh, so, Andy, I'm hoping this is working well, this recording, because I'm struggling to hear you a bit. So, um, I'll turn, turn towards that bloody microphone. Uh, yeah, well, I'm imagining you're sort of under your desk at this point and you're just starting to stiffen up a bit. In, yeah, the concrete's getting quite cold. Thinking, <laughs> yeah, you're getting cold as well. Right, well, well, I'll keep it as brief as I can. Um, what would be number two? What would be your second point? I think the second point will probably offend you greatly, but it's removing the not saying your pompous, but the pomposity from food, uh, and and all the sort of I don't know. There's so much bullshit in food, and so much. Um, this is you know from the north side of a valley, and it's da 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 da, and it's this and it's that and the other thing. And I think that food is too important for the to be hijacked by the chattering classes. I think there's a danger that if you have elitism in food. That um, you have a but you it then produces an underclass who uh, who who don't actually get for good food. It doesn't cost any more to produce to cook good food, which is full of flavour, but it costs to cook dreadful food and do it really badly. So I suppose the way I'm looking at it is that the um, I, I think probably this is a theme touched on by previous people. That it comes down to education and and teaching everybody how to handle food well and how to you know, just general understanding of, of, of cooking uh, food hygiene food just everything about the stuff really because 
there's no reason for people not to have good food most of the time. And and, and, and I say that, you and I are very much involved in the country food trust and, and food banks, things like that. And we know that there is that times in people's lives where food poverty is a major, major issue. And we're not talking about that. We're just talking about the, 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 the majority of, of, of people who don't have um, necessarily the, the skills anymore to just to take inexpensive meats and inexpensive vegetables and produce something remarkably good. They end up just buying um, more expensive, highly processed, dodgy food, which commercial commercial organizations have put least cost environment least cost ingredients in to produce. And so it's a knowledge it's it's removing back pomposity and giving the giving everybody the knowledge to, to have good food. And it's um, so it doesn't cost anything other than knowledge and intelligence. Yeah, uh, you know, I'm with you. And I think as I'm um, uh, Senny Glaster, who was or Sini Glaster, sorry, who was my first, um, I got her name wrong that time as well. Um, Sini Glaster who's a friend of mine and a founder of We FIFO. Um, she made a point in one of our early Madam's casts that that's not a problem that should be fixed at the supermarket. Um, it's a problem that should be should be fixed elsewhere in terms of being able to afford decent food. Um, and I think I agree. And I think that one of the ways that would be interesting to look at how you would fund that um, would be to uh, just remove rubbish food and see if you save yourself an awful lot of money in the healthcare department. Yeah, again, that's that's the societal problem. You know, there's, there's, the, there's the business case, there's the uh, personal individual case, and then there's the members of societal damage, which bloody awful food produces, and and there's so much bloody awful food. So as you say, it could. I don't know. It's difficult. There's this um, cultural problem with Big Brother uh, intervention into coming into uh, into any system, but. We, in the end, society pays for it. So society should have some say in, in in preventing the problems it creates. Yeah, yeah. So point two but, then. But it's I've education. This... It comes down to education. As well. Okay, so, okay. So, okay. So, so, so it is something which I, I can't understand why in school you're not prepared to to understand the financial system and understand just understand more about your life because. It's preparing you to work, to move efficiently and cost-effectively through life. So understanding food helps you cost-effectively live. So you end up not having an inflationary problem. You haven't got to earn so much money because you haven't got to spend the money on um, on you know buying food which somebody else has cooked for you. You can actually cook it yourself. Yeah, and, yeah, and save a fortune. And I mean, I know how inexpensive food is because I'm the poor sod who actually has to produce it and sell it for bugger all to, 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 to somebody else. <laughs> well, that's very good. Can I remind you that we have um, we have a clean uh, clean lyrics certificate for the Madam's Cast broadcast. So um, I thought I've done quite well to get that far. You, you've done incredibly well, Andy. <laughs> uh, given what I uh, your and my language are not always the best, um, and so I think you've done very well. But I'm going to have to get the blipper out for the B word back there. I think so. If you could limit those for me, that'll save me a bit of time in the edit. Of course, I will. You might not want to save me any time in the edit. In which case, you carry on swearing, mate, and I'll go through with the blipping machine. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so point two then if i'm going to wrap it up in my nutshell as i like to um i've written here a better understanding of food and far less twaddle spoken about it yeah via education um educating people about the lives they live and what it costs and that sounds big brother as well just giving a better opportunities to understand it 
And, and, okay, and, fine. I mean, and, and so much, te- so much television. Uh, there's too many cooks on television, as, in the same way as too many cooks spoil the broth. But so much of it is food. I mean, I'd say porn, aren't I? But so, so much of it is food porn rather than stuff people can actually easily cook. And, and I can understand that because it's interesting and makes good television. But uh, but most people watch it and go, oh, that's nice, and then don't do it. Yeah. And I, yeah. But well, I don't I blame the televisions for that. The television people for that. I never watch television, so I don't actually know what's going on there, really. <laughs> You've heard about it. I've heard about it. Allegedly. Yes, exactly. Allegedly. Allegedly. Yeah, I think it's interesting the way that the language has evolved about that, actually, because, I mean, this is a bit far out, perhaps, but I really don't like the term food porn, right? Because pornography is not real. Okay. Yeah, it might be, it might at certain you. times be exciting and a bit, you know, all of that, but it's not really, it's not real. And I think to tie that, to tie food up in that same way and describe it like that just basically tells you everything you need to know about that food. It's just not right or real in any way. Hmm. Maybe I've gone off on one about that. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. Uh, so, <laughs> so while, we're, while, we're, while we're having less twaddle and better education, are we allowed to keep podcasts like this one? Or... Oh, yeah, 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 because this is just telling the truth. This is just expo- okay. exposing the problems to try to solve them. Brilliant. Fine. Well, that's a relief because I thought we might have been classed as twaddle for a minute. No, in which no, case, no, no. I'm sorry. There's no twaddle. It's going to boot you off. Right. <laughs> um, okay. Well, I think those are, those are two really good points. Um, I, I'm, but what's happening here is this is raising more questions than answers, which is not an unusual thing necessarily for the Madagascar, no. but it's it's firing up my imagination and giving me some interest. So, um, but the, about, the, the reality is with all of these things, the, 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 the complexity of, of almost everything means that in a, in a half hour or hour podcast, you're not going to have any answers. You could only ask the questions and highlight and get people thinking about these uh, you know hopefully people will move towards answers um if you ask questions but you need some you always need some irritating person to ask the question yeah yeah i don't disagree i do not disagree and it's like if we go back to point one i think there are some good scientific bods working within agriculture doing very clever stuff in a very green or very very you know circular way it's just not the majority of the story and 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 that will be interesting to see how that develops okay all right well andy i feel like you must have run out of bullets here because i mean this is quite a lot but you reckon you've got a number three up your sleeve as well yeah if you've got time regional slaughterhouses when i started in this trade i was running a slaughterhouse and uh, and we used to get food standards agency or whatever they were called back then um book through and it was about an inch thick now it's about two i'm changing my um from imperial to metric, now it's about three millimetres thick. So, but basically, regional slaughterhouses have all disappeared, and this is bad in many, many ways. Bad for livestock because they've got a travel server. It's bad for the industry because basically we're heading towards something else. It's almost a cartel of of owners of slaughterhouses uh, with um, integration between them and the supermarkets, and that's closing down competition and stops the, um, which means that. Farmers, of which, as I said before, are a disparate bunch. There's huge numbers of them, and they don't—they're not particularly cooperating. And that means that the um, route to market is is 
is held by a, a very small cartel, actually. Uh, it's quite, that's a bit of an exaggeration. It's not really a complete cartel, but, but um, you can see from the pricing that um, there's a degree of uh, lack of competition on occasions. And when you consider the scale of land ownership when compared to the to the, the, the money invested in slaughterhouses, it does seem bizarre that, um, well, as farmers, we actually own the entire country, uh, yeah. the, land, the land mass on which we, we, we live, um, yet we're, we're, you know, our route to market for meat is through a remarkably small amount of investment. So it just strikes me as that, that in itself is bizarre. But, but, and the reason why we've lost our these slaughterhouses is is partly because um, legislation, European or otherwise, uh, has um, meant that uh, the people who originally were running slaughterhouses were culturally ill-suited to um, killing a bullock and filling in a form. The two, the two, the two things don't really... The, two, the, the, the capacity to kill a bullock and doesn't necessarily align with the capacity to fill in lots of forms and uh, do the HACCP and things like that. So yeah. people... They, they're, 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 Inevitably, was a battle between the food standards agency who wanted the forms filled in and the people who just wanted to get on with killing bullocks. So, so large, large sections of the industry just went, "Oh bloody hell, I'm bored with this." Oops, sorry. And um, and <laughs> that's that's how we got to. Uh, that, that's why a, a lot closed down. A lot of them were just old, and and there wasn't a great deal of interest. And really, most children when they're going through school, they think, "Oh." I know what I want to do when I grow up. I want to kill animals. Uh, but there's a great deal of pressure in the other direction, really. And, and uh, so it's not... Um, you're a bit of a social pariah if you're in my business. But Andy, I'm going to interrupt just for a second because... Um, well, partly because that's in my nature to interrupt, but partly because I think at this point it would be really useful to understand the scale of this problem. And there's a couple of things uh, that will help us do that. Now, I'm always a bit reluctant to put numbers on stuff because my brain is pretty fuzzy at the best of times, let alone when we're talking about numbers. But a few years ago, I was doing the research for a book I was going to write um, that I never got round to writing that was going to be called Meat Less Often, uh, which was all a sort of a, a bit of a, a, a thoughtful process about um, meat production in the UK and how we could better use it. Um, it. It's no wonder that it didn't get published because, I mean, it doesn't sound very exciting, does it? But when I was doing it, I came across some numbers uh, about slaughterhouses. Now, it's something like, and I'm going to get this wrong, but it was something like there were just over three and a half thousand slaughterhouses in the UK at the end of 1970 or 1980 and by the year 2000 there were fewer than 400 that sounds about right i certainly if you look at devon i was looking at looking at a piece of paper the other day which said there were i think 28 storehouses in devon and now there's about six so mm. you know it's, mm. it's a, a proportion devon is a big county devon what is a big county too it is pretty, pretty well one of the best places to grow red meat in the world uh, from the point of view of the climate and the soils and everything else. So it, it, we do produce the best meat in the you know, southwest peninsula. There's nowhere better to produce meat. So you'd think there would be, if anywhere, storehouses were going to survive. And if, ever, if there was anywhere that should, which they would be uh, in demand and needed, this this is the county for it. But we are now shipping land, livestock out of the county some of the time as well as um, certainly we still have them here, but, um, but they're just Really, it's mainly the, the very big ones, and, yeah, and they, don't, yeah. they don't have the capacity to handle stuff that Johnny wants to supply the farmers' market, or or your average butcher who wants to um, 
you know, have a couple of carcasses back a week and cut them up themselves. So the top quality end of the food chain is suffering. Um, but, and, of course, the top quality end of the food... Um, I mean, farming in the UK is heavily legislated, and, and the welfare standards in the UK are extremely excellent from top to bottom. But the opportunity to have higher, higher, higher welfare standards, generally speaking, are aligned with with the smaller producer, the niche producer who is um, going to market smaller quantities and wants to have a smaller facility to kill it in. So, yeah. so you know, it's a tragedy on all levels not having... But, but unfortunately, people don't go out onto the streets and march waving placards saying, we need more slaughterhouses, uh, despite the fact that uh, what, what it actually produces is, is societally good and animal welfare good and everything else. But you won't find, um, you know, you won't find people laughing to sort out. So yeah, it, that's a, it's it's a problem. It is a problem which isn't really being addressed. I personally am in a position where we might be able to collaborate with somebody to open one within this region, and, and there is a pent up demand for it from the point of view of the customer, customers, and the and the livestock. So yeah, there is a there is a case for doing it, but I suppose. I'm unusual in as much as I can fill in a form and kill a bullock. So that's yeah, that's, yeah. Well, I think that's probably less unusual now than perhaps it was twenty years ago. But I think for me, it kind of just strikes that classic, classic gong of failure, doesn't it? Where you think, okay, I'm a local producer and I'm producing my hill lamb or my you know small rare breed cattle that are just pottering about the hills in devon they're grazing stuff that's completely outlying land they're not overgrazing it you know it's a really great way of growing a bit of meat within the tolerances of the environment yep and then i've got to put it in a truck and drive it 70 miles to get it slaughtered yep no yep. sense makes no, no sense. sense whatsoever and and you're an optimist saying 70 miles sometimes. I, well, I was born an optimist. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, so was I. I still Probably have. why I've made so little of myself, because I keep thinking <laughs> everything will be all right. No, no, I um, think you've got, to, you've got to be an optimist to get anywhere, because otherwise you just stay in bed. And they always say optimists start wars because they think they'll win, whereas pessimists don't. <laughs> well, let's, if we're going to start a war, let's start a war for better food production yep. systems than, rather than rather than you know ultimately wealth <laughs> um brilliant okay so point three reopen regional slaughterhouses now that's that's not going to be very popular in with with like the current thinking because lots of people and there's lots of dissent and i'm open to having a long conversation about this not necessarily with you and not necessarily right now but going onwards through life there seems to be a big 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 push um certainly nationally certainly within certain classes although obviously we live in a class of society now i think we can all sort of assume that there are some new classes that exist um towards a completely meat free diet which initially i don't have an issue with if you don't want to eat meat that's absolutely fine by me but I'm not sure that that push is for the right reasons because it seems to be wrapped up in quite a lot of not necessarily that straightforward argument environmentally. Have you got any thoughts on that before we step out of the serious part of the show and into the flippant latter section? Yeah, that was a very stupid question. Have I got any thoughts on that? Um, <laughs> the, 
Well, I know you've got thoughts on it, <laughs> but I, I just wondered if, if we, I think we ought to bring it up because it, you know. Well, it, I mean, it's, as, for, as with all things, it's the complexity of, your, of the conversation, isn't it? So if you're producing um, feedlots, beef, then soil and barley in the middle of America, then it's, that's a bad thing and you should not be eating that meat. If you're producing grassland, which sequestrates carbon in northwest Europe, where the grass is, 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 constantly capturing carbon and and the beef or sheep you produce or deer or whatever else is as uh, nutrient-dense uh, food stuff as you could eat then yeah of course it's a good idea to produce fat and and, and so the, most scientists involved in this say that pastoral systems are good for sequestering carbon and um and in actual fact the weight of of bovines belching on the landscape now is is as is lower than it was in uh, Mesolithic times when um, there was you know the world was covered in belching bison. So so the, the methane levels haven't necessarily changed. But if you want to cut down the um, the rainforest and and kick out the Indians and grow soya and eat that instead, well that's fine by me. But it's probably oh, not. No, great. I can't I can't let you have that. You can't go from just from one to the other. If we're allowed a good system of meat production, we must be also allowed a good system of uh, vegetable diet production. I quite I agree. I was being a devil's advocate, but the danger is... I know, I know, I know, <laughs> I know but I don't want to... It's a serious point, and you know me, I'm, I'm up for having the laugh and, and poking people in the side as well. Yeah. But I don't think we can we can switch from... I, I can't let you get away from switching directly like that from, from a point of defence to a point of attack and, and just use <laughs> such a broad brushstroke, even though I've asked you to keep it brief. I think really that just brings you back to point one, doesn't it? The whole thing this comes back to point one which is we need to be farming in a way that's suitable for the land we're on and that is not going to be able to be done by from one simple rule book absolutely and and, and it changes i mean the landscape in devon for instance the soil types change within fields on occasion i've got three geologies under this farm and i've got um two um two soil types uh, but sometimes i mean my farm i was born on had three soil types and, and those soil types dictate what you do on them, or should dictate. But unfortunately, bag nitrogen and, and, and chemical sprays have allowed us to get away from that dictation for a while, but not forever. So, yeah, it, 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 as you say, it takes a full circle. So farming should suit the landscape and the soil type and the weather that we have. And, and at the same time, we are experiencing these greater extremes, and we do need to... Um, build within into our farming systems capacity to hold on to our soils and retain moisture in the summer and uh, absorb water in the winter and so on and so on and so on so uh, we could go on and on and on really. um, yeah well and we will do offline once once we finish recording of the cast i'm sure you and i will have another long and involved discussion yeah um and i, th- I do quite like i mean i sort of like where you were going with the point about cutting down rainforest to grow soil but it's also quite dicey ground to be on, isn't it? Because a lot of that soil then goes for meat production. So I think Which the bottom line is we, Which shouldn't. we shouldn't be cutting down. We shouldn't be cutting down any rainforest. Um, but we should. Period. We certainly should not be feeding soil. I know we do, and I know that milk production in the UK generally relies on it. But but we should just be coming up with alternatives. We should be able to produce homegrown proteins. Um, and you know, soil into meat is is a simple idea, but grass into meat is a pudding idea. And yeah. we we just need to have a, an economic system which recognises that grass-fed beef is good and soya-fed beef is bad, and that's yeah. about it really. It's, it's not it's not much more complicated than that. But what we but, but unfortunately the, the the vegan argument um, 
has stripped it back to be bad, uh, you know, veg good, but it's not. It's it's grass fed meat good, soya fed meat bad, and 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 actually, as I say, veg good on the whole. If people need to eat more veg and cut back on the meat and appreciate the meat they've got, which goes back to point two, which is education. You know, how to how to utilize the whole carcass, how to be more respectful of the animal that you're eating by not wasting any part of it, and so on and so on and so on. I mean, food waste, you know, point four, five, six, and so we go on. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, excellent. Oh, brilliant, Andy. That was fantastic. Points one, two, and three, um, beautifully put together. Uh, and you know, I've tried my best to trip you up and interrupt you along the way, but frankly, I agree with everything you're saying. So it's quite tricky for me to be an objective journalist on that one. I, I've made the effort. Hopefully, I've I've got sort of halfway there. Um, that takes us out of the of the things you'd like to change in the world of food section. And I'm sorry you were only allowed three things. I know you wanted at least a dozen. Yeah. Um, you've now got to pick a book and a drink. Uh, it's a recipe book or a cookery book or at the very least a food-related book. And what you'd like to drink while you're having it on your desert island. The desert island is a hypothetical desert island. It's not even necessarily an island or a desert. It's just somewhere where you're stuck and you've only got one book that you can read about food and you're only allowed to have one thing to drink with it. Yeah. And then you need to nominate somebody else to come on the Madam's cast, alive, dead, real, fictitious, whether they agree to oh. come on or not, you still have to nominate someone. Okay. okay uh, those are your that. remaining three tasks. Uh, how do you feel about that? Okay. I all, I've forgotten everyone. So I'm thinking very hard about that last one. The book, um, I don't really use cookery books. I do cook a great deal, but I don't tend to use books. Um, I do have uh, a great believer in having a Larousse gastronomique on your on your shelf just to refer to. Uh, I do use Claire MacDonald, who occasionally, I suppose, who um, lived on an island, which is Mull, I think, and 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 she does, she would cook things that um, tends to be in my larder because she Mull sounds on. great. What's her She's name again? Claire MacDonald. And so she ran a restaurant on on Mull, and basically she she was just cooking stuff that was available on Mull. Or might be either, I can't remember, but someone like that. But she's great. Um, I, I do like your old mate, um, Fernie Whittensell's meat book, because it basically talks about respecting the animal, respecting the carcass, and then thinks of a myriad of ways of using it. So I've gone a bit off piece because I've got too many books already. Uh, and, and <laughs> well, that's it. That's what normally happens. So yeah. From starting okay. off without by saying you don't really use cookery books, you've then listed about twenty. <laughs> I know. And, and on top of that, uh, somebody needs to write a book, which is just a practical approach. To, you know, it's, it's, I think there's a niche for a basic principles book: how to cook a perfect steak, how to make a stock, sweating onions. You know, the stuff which is for building bricks to good cooking. Because I don't think we should be stuck with following a recipe like a good German soldier. I think we should. Um, you know, if you know how to do the stuff, I mean, if I don't know what to cook, I sweat an onion first, and then then I peer into my larder as I'm doing it, then chucking yeah. anything else. You shouldn't be tied down to bloody recipes. It's it should come out of your head and your experience, and 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 you shouldn't be afraid to fail. You should cook what you think is right, and if it's dreadful, move on and forget about it. So there we go. You learn, you learn so much from making the mistakes, right? You you do, and and, and they're not catastrophic. You still eat them. It's just that then you think, oh, I could have done that better. But isn't that about life? Isn't that the, the entire experience of life? Is is don't stand back and look, jump in, have a go. Oh bollocks! Oops, sorry, and that didn't work. And, <laughs> <laughs> and aren't we okay, going? You have to get the bleep machine out again. Yeah, I know, I know. Okay, okay, excellent. Um, so, are you going to choose a book? A book. Uh, 
Yeah, Claire McDonald. Okay. Okay. Any idea what the title of that is? No. Okay. Fine. Can't remember. So that's I'm, how, okay, that's how well, long ago I looked. I haven't looked at it in ten years. But that's okay. Fine. That's so I will. Don't worry. I'll trawl the internet later and find yeah. the title of it, and I'll put a link on the program page uh, for the podcast, so that anyone who's interested in taking a look at that. And I'm certainly interested in taking a look at that because I really like food books that are about places because people who interact with their local produce to create their own cuisine are, in my book, the coolest people on the planet. Yeah, so, common sense, isn't it? It's just, it's just good common sense and common sense is good. Ah, yeah, but the common the thing about common sense, Andy, as I'm sure it's you not know, that common. is that it's very badly named. Yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. It's like the common quail. You don't see many of them around anymore, do you? <laughs> okay, um, what are you going to drink while you're perusing uh, Claire McDonald's book of many possible titles? Devon Farm Cider. Oh yes, and and I, 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 I made some notes. It's good, clean farm cider. No sulphur dioxide. No bloody CO two stuck in it. No, with no vinegar taint. It's got to be in April or May when it's at its absolute sharpest, cleanest sparkle. It has a natural sparkle and a natural effervescence. And, and, and I mean, I was brought up producing twelve to 18,000 gallons a year. And I could walk out the door from the age of, well, we, we never didn't drink it. So we were drinking it when we were 10, 11 plus. And it was just a clean, delicious, uh, just indescribably delicious drink. Oh, and, so and, natural as well, isn't it? And, I mean, the, just... and the thing with cider is you don't sip it, you swig it. It hits the back of your tongue. It, you don't you don't make mince about other stuff. You uh, it, you do you do drink it. So Devon cider served in a nice glass, a nice pint glass, poured from a glass jug and pulled straight from, straight from a barrel in which it was made after having been having been racked or, or off its knees three times. Oh, that's um, see, it's so simple. Simple. So simple, and so but that's elegant. what we—that's what we did. We we would we would crush apples, press them through cloths, put them into a barrel, let them go through their their, their basic fermentation, to pump the pump the top off, leaving the dregs behind, the drugs behind, and three times, and then drink it. Nothing else. Sounds great. I've got I've got and quite a lot of elderflower fizz on the go at the moment, and that is just again just the simplest process. Yeah. Available to me. Yeah, yeah. It's it's no bullshit, please. <laughs> Beep. <laughs> oh, that's quite a light moment. <laughs> oh, I know, I know, but I don't want to get into trouble with the clean lyrics people. Okay. Um, right. Okay. Um, no, no, I don't, maybe I'll get prosecuted. It will be fun. Yeah. Um, okay. So we've done the book. We're we're having a and I'm with you. I'm quite happy to sit and have a, a glass of farmhouse cider while I look at, at Claire McDonald's book, whatever it's called. I'm looking forward to that. I'm going to have to go and buy that. This. Um, podcast of mine is costing me a fortune, a fortune in new yes. books because everyone keeps suggesting something that sounds brilliant and I have to go out and buy it. Um, don't tell oh, anyone. I've got to nominate somebody, haven't I? You have. That's the last. That's your last proper job before okay, you Okay, there's a million people I could nominate, but actually one of my heroes, he, and he'll think I've got some weird stuff if you won't have a clue who I am, is a chap called Joel Williams, and he's a, he's a Welsh-Australian soil scientist. And he, his knowledge of soil is fantastic. His enthusiasm is enormously infectious. And he believes that soil can save the world. And, and actually, you know, lack of soil will definitely kill the world. So um, Joel Williams, you'll have a job to find him. But if you look him up, just put in Google Joel Williams, soil scientist, and listen to what he has to say. He's not very old, 
but by Christ, he's wise. Oh, fantastic. And that is a proper curveball and someone who I definitely want to have on, on the cast. So I might have to start digitally stalking him, see if I can talk him into it. Yeah, he's great. Oh, fantastic. Andy, what are you gonna where are you off to next? What's happening the rest of your the rest of your day? I'm gonna straighten up, get the cold out of the cold concrete out of my back, and I'm gonna <laughs> go back to trying to work out how to sell more meat boxes to save this company from the thing we haven't mentioned, which is this damn crisis we're in, because most of the time I supply top notch hotels and restaurants and best chefs in the southwest with high quality meat but now i'm only i have to send it through the meat box company which i finally put my plug in for so we are online digitally marketing meat at the moment just to see ourselves through this crisis and brilliant well i'm gonna i'm gonna put a link up on the program page uh to that as well so anyone who wants to order a a nice box of uh frozen meat produced and, and butchered in devon and delivered direct to their door uh can do so via your lovely company Andy, Good. thank you very much for coming on the Madam's Cast and having a chinwag with me. I look forward to our next um, our next head-to-head uh, -head in the real world. Yep. And um, I, I hope you have a lovely day and a great weekend ahead of you. Good to talk. Nice one, matey. All the best. Thanks very Bye. much. Bye, then. Bye.